0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. I heard you been spending a lot of time at your auntie house. How's the couch life? Yeah, my woman and my baby living there is hard, man. But you know, everybody can't do what you do. Really what I do, getting played out, Jay. Right? Where the money at? But why you got to be so ruthless, cuz? I'll make a few changes, where you think you're going? I'm just trying to get home. That's my son. You need to get back in the house or I will ruin your oh, night. Shame. I gotta talk to my moms like that. you had the chance to change the situation, would you take it? Just hit that first beat hard, all right? You cruising down the street. All right. Cruising down the street in my 6'4". Hey, that was dope, eh? You're listening to Compton's very own Ice Cube, Easy E, and Dr. Dre. I gotta tell you, you are witnessing history. People are staring at you guys. You have a unique voice. The world needs to hear They want N.W.A. Let's give them N.W.A.
1: This is only the tip of the iceberg,
0: gentlemen. What's going on? What do you have in that bag? Are you kidding me? You can't take that in the bus. songs glamorize gangs and drugs our art is a reflection of our reality you guys supposed to be somewhere these are artists rap is not an art you cannot come down here and harass my clients because of what they look like i promise you things gonna
2: be different from here on out. listen to be honest with
3: you i don't know anything about hip-hop but i know that you're special
0: you want to be involved with this gangster life here we go truth and people lose
2: their mind. This isn't the Crips and Bloods. This is a threat from the federal government.
0: They're trying to tell us what we can't play. This ain't giving you are. Yo, Drake. What up? I got something to say. We can keep going, man. We can take over the goddamn world. Get a little dust of wind and I'm Believe a
2: Hey everybody, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. Today is going to be a real quick one. We are talking about Straight Outta Compton, the new NWA biopic. We're going to be interviewing Bill Strauss here in a little bit, the producer of the film. So Rob... Did you witness the strength of street knowledge when it came to Straight Outta Compton?
1: Yes, I did. I had a chance to check it out last night, and I have to say it is uh, far exceeded of my expectations. Because when I first heard that they were going to do this movie, I thought to myself, really? Because there was part of me that kind of felt maybe that story really couldn't be told and, and told in a way that you know, if a Hollywood studio was going to back it. And then also, as a, as a journalist for years, it's always weird when your subjects are paying money or, you know, heavily involved in your story. And in this case, Ice Cube, Dre, and uh, Easy es family were all involved as executive producers and helped to put some money up uh, to make the film. But I don't feel that they really um, shied away from anything in terms of the story. And I think it's very fair to kind of all involved. It doesn't really make anyone out to be um, bigger heroes than, than they really are. And for me, um, when I walked out, I realized kind of two things. It's uh, my, my first reaction is it's the boogie nights of hip-hop it's basically this sprawling story, but without the fancy camera moves that Paul Thomas Anderson borrowed from Goodfellas. And the other thing is, too, and I think I had always kind of known this, but it became even more evident watching the film. And especially in the context of things like Ferguson and Baltimore and, and all of those similar stories that we're seeing, uh, getting more and more attention lately, that um, you know, NWA was talking about police brutality and Black Lives Matter kind of issues 30 years ago, almost. So sadly, that issue is still with us and uh, really would be nice if we could fix that in
2: our lifetimes. How was Paul Giamatti? I thought, you know, that was the thing, too, is
1: when I walked in there, I didn't know anyone in the cast. And the fact that Paul Giamatti is basically the name talent, as far as I could tell, he did a really nice job as Jerry Heller, the producer who came in and um, guy who helped Easy e sort of set up the business end of what became Ruthless Records and ultimately led to the destruction and downfall of NWA in a lot of ways. So I thought he did a really nice job in there And it was interesting to sort of see what that interplay was between this, you know, businessman and then these guys over here who were just trying to do their thing and sort of where those things connected and sort of the intrigue back and forth and how the money and the contracts and all of that stuff eventually sort of split up the team that could have went a lot further. And I think that's the one thing that you take away is just sort of the feeling of loss to a certain extent that, you know, they could have done so much more together. But when you look at what... Dr. Dre is done, and you look at what Ice Cube has done, and just that legacy that comes out of NWA. It's pretty amazing.
2: Was he kind of like the pig vomit of the film? <laughs> yeah,
1: he, he, that was the character, of course, he played in uh, private parts, but I'd have to say that his character in here was kind of more like the character he played in Man on the Moon when he played Bob Zamuda, you know, just sort of that kind of attitude, and uh, a little older. You know, you get the feeling that. Uh, he was this older guy, maybe by 20, 30 years, who had been around the block in the music business and had a, um, you know, an understanding of sort of how to take these guys and get them in front of people and, in the end, may have taken advantage of them pretty heavily from what it seems like in the film. For me, it was just interesting to see all this stuff because it's a film that I think takes a lot of chances in a lot of ways because there's no star factor. The, really, the star factor is the story, the people. Who they're portraying, so it's not like you're going to go in there and you're going to see some, you know, named talent guy. But I have to say, all the people that they have in there who are the actors who play, the, you know, the main core of the of the group NWA, did do a really nice job because it must have been very hard for casting to not only find people that look like especially the three iconic you know, leads in NWA, Eazy-E and Ice Cube and Dr. Dre, they have a very specific look, and not only to have that look, but also to be able to be competent actors and to a certain extent, I guess, be able to perform, even if it's not them rapping. I'm not sure uh, who did the actual raps in there, but it didn't sound like they were pulling record drops, if you know what I mean. So to kind of have all that together in one package is, is kind of amazing. I mean, when you consider what they were able to pull off. And... The other things that kind of amazed me is that, you know, Jerry Heller, the former manager, is still around. And in the film, he doesn't come off all that well. And we've seen other biopics um, before where names have been changed or they've had to do certain things because they were afraid of legal consequences. And it'd be interesting to kind of know um, how they handled that issue because. He doesn't come off looking all that good, and I could totally see this guy as someone who might you know, be willing to fire off a couple of lawsuits because a movie doesn't look all that nice in terms of his portrayal of what he did with Eazy-E and, and the group at the time
2: kind of sounds like the Colonel Parker of
1: NWA. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what you get across is that he came in, he had this knowledge and there's a feeling that he really did take advantage of the situation and in a lot of ways sort of led, you know, Eric Wright, Eazy-E sort of down the path and sort of divided and conquered him against specifically uh, Dre and Ice Cube and all of that stuff. And the guy that they cast also After everything fell apart and Death Row got founded, the guy who was cast as Suge Knight looks really good in here, too, and does a really nice job. And as I was walking out, I kind of reminded myself of, uh, you know, the cartoons when you were kids uh, you'd watch, and there was always that sort of like bearded, um, not like Bluto, but sort of Bluto esque kind of character with sort of the beard and the, and the cigar. I go, Shook Knight kind of looks like that, you know, from when you were watching, like, I don't know, like Bugs Bunny cartoons or something like that when I was a kid. And I'm like, I don't know if that was intentional on his part in terms of his style, but uh, it kind of reminded me of
2: that. <laughs> Any feet dangling uh, incidents in this one?
1: No, but there was definitely some um, you know, uh, hotel madness with, you know, people flashing guns and things like that, and 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 one of the things that I really took away from the film is that it shows this level of what they did is really nothing different in terms of style of what, you know, like you were talking about Elvis, or you were talking about like The Who, or you were talking about all these, you know, well known white rock musicians who got a little bit of money and then started. You know, tearing up hotel rooms and spending lavishly and, you know, doing all this crazy and eccentric stuff. I mean, it's really nothing different, you know, if you know your your rock history. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see it that way. I just think that when they came out, they got a lot of attention because they were pushing buttons and they were getting in the face of the establishment, especially with a song like Fuck the Police. I mean, there's the whole scene that's in there about Detroit represent of the Detroit police telling them when they played Joe Lewis in 1989 that they were not to play that song. And if they were, then they were going to be arrested and all of this and, and that whole scenario. So it's, it's, it's interesting how all these things kind of play out.
2: All right, let's take a break and play an interview with the producer of Straight Out of Compton, Bill Strauss. Hello?
3: Oh, hi, this is Bill Strauss calling.
2: Hey, Bill, how you doing?
3: Good. Yeah, I'm driving from New York to D.C. right
2: now. When did the discussions kind of start, pulling together this whole movie straight out of Compton, and what was the decision behind Let's Make the NWA biopic?
3: You know, it wasn't something where I was, or we were walking around saying, let's let's go make a NWA biopic. It was a... Um, a young manager who sent me the script. I was a, somewhat of a new producer at the time, and I, I had been at New Line for a while. I'd been an executive, a, a junior executive at New Line, and I was sort of a new producer working with a company called Circle Confusion. And a manager sent us sent us the script. So, so it was really upon reading the script that the that the concept crystallized of making the film. My story is more about being able to get the film realized at that point. So we were able to get the music rights, which was sort of more my contribution than anything. I guess my point is a lot of people have thought about making this film, but nobody's been able to get the music rights.
1: Now, those music rights, was that just an issue of the fact that there were all these different labels, and then there were people kind of wrestling over who had control of what and what you could do with it?
3: It was ruthless. You needed the rights for the ruthless catalog to be able to make the film because that was NWA's... Um, that was all the, you know, straight out of Compton and the, the sort of the classic NWA hits, and they were controlled by Tamika, and she... I think some people sort of tried to take advantage of her. Right after Easy died, she, she left the ruthless catalog to her, and so she was very wary of, of any... Um, of anyone who wanted to make the film, and she was approached by a lot of very influential people. And myself and David Engel who's the other executive producer on the film, along with the writer, Lee Savage, really spent two years navigating sort of a sixth degree of separation of relationships to get to her, and and also developing a script to to hopefully get it to a point where she would sign off on on, um, becoming part of the project.
1: That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, is, you know, she became sort of one of the producers, and then also Dr. Dre and Ice Cube as well, and, you know, when the script was being formulated and created into what we finally see, did they ever go, you know, no, you can't put that in, or, you know, why are you shading it this way or that way? Was there a lot of discussion about how this material was going to be created for the screen, how that story was going to be told?
3: Cube and Dre came in late, after we got the music, we sold it to New Line, and Cube came in that day, because that day New Line said you've got to bring in Cube and Dre producers. Dre took, that was 2006, he just came aboard um, a couple of years ago, and Cube really sort of became the lead producer at that point, and you know, I, I was not necessarily privy to what he may or may not have wanted in the film, but I think that there was pro- there were probably those, those kind of discussions. I just, I don't want to say something that I don't know to necessarily be true. I think my claim to fame was being there at the beginning. We were on on a lot of the calls at the beginning after it sold the new line, but the actual making of the movie was really Cube and Dre and obviously F. Gary Gray. And so I don't, you know, I was on set. I hung out on set a little bit, but I can't really speak to all the decisions.
2: What was your history of music? Were you a big NWA fan coming up?
3: I was a hip-hop head in the early 80s in New York. And I used to go to kind of all the famous clubs in New York in the early 80s that kind of spawned hip-hop. You know, that sort of stayed with me. And I went to college at USC and I was classmate with John Singleton. I worked on the film Boys in the Hood because of our friendship. Later when I became an, I was an executive at New Line, sort of a junior executive, as I think I mentioned before, you know, I was always sort of looking for projects in the, you know, in that sphere where movies meet the hip-hop aesthetic. You know, movies like later-day Boys in the Hood. So I think, yeah I was very into the music. I knew people who became rap stars, sort of. So, so I think that people knew what I was looking for, and that's why they sent me that script.
1: You know, that was what I was going to ask, is when you received that and you packaged it and you went out and you tried to find a studio that would be interested in doing this, what was their reaction and, you know, what kind of things did you run up against in terms of being able to get it done?
3: My former boss at New Line, you know, he came from the music business. His name's Toby Emmerich, and he... Uh, Dude, one little story I didn't tell you is that a couple weeks after I first got the script, I went to Sundance and I was staying with the Forty Acres and the Mule people, and they're the one. You know, my friend there is the one who told me that you know everybody's tried to do this. We tried to do it, you know. It's, you know, apparently, Imagine they tried to do it. And none of this is substantiated, but that these are I'd heard these rumors in different places. Maybe a couple people from the group had tried to do it. You know, it was supposed to be sort of this impossible thing to do. And so when the script went into new line, Toby didn't believe that we actually had the music the you know, sneak uh, attached and the music attached. So he said, Yeah, I yeah, if it's really true, go ahead and buy it. So that was you know, that was sort of a anecdote that a friend of mine who would forgot the exact what the script told me about and, and you know there was a lot of interest in a lot of the studios. It was uh it was an exciting time when we sold it.
1: You know, you're dealing with, you know, real people with real stories and lives. And, and I know sometimes like when things get biopic treatment, sometimes they have to change names or they, you know, they can allude to someone, but they can't use a real name. And in the case of the former manager, Jerry Heller, you know, he's still alive and doesn't come across all that nice in here. So was there any concerns of possible legal action or how the studios kind of handled this issue when it came to him? Because was there ever any concern that he was going to come after you or producers or somebody related to the, to the film?
3: It crossed my mind. I think we talked about it. You know, he is a bit of heavy, but I do think the film does portray him evenly at times. You know, the scene with the uh, with the police outside the recording studio. I thought he came across as you know. That's one of the things I liked. Him, I liked about the film was that he came across as sort of uh, three dimensional, but a lot of that's been annotated. You know, I can't speak to what Universal's. Legal department might might have um, done with him, but I think that's you know a big part of their story that Jerry that Jerry's the reason the group broke up. So and I think you know that's been mentioned in you know a lot of, in press for years. I'm sure Universal did it in such a way that that they weren't open to any potential action.
2: You worked on Boys in the Hood, and the world was such a different place all those years ago, but yet so many things have not changed. What was your experience like working on that particular film?
3: Well, I was a production assistant. I think that one of the interesting things now is that, um, it feels similar in a way, the excitement around the film. There was a sense around boys in the hood that it was going to, uh, that it was going to, to be, a, an important film because there really hadn't been anything like it. And, I don't know that you can say there hasn't been anything like N.W.A., but, you know, it's certainly like the, the crest of, like, pop culture's focus on the film. I mean, I guess I'm in my own world being around it every day the last few weeks. I think that it's a really similar sort of milieu and sense and sense of excitement and expectation that's, that's going to be, I think, I think people are going to be satisfied by the movie in the same, in the same respect.
1: The one thing that really stood out to me when I got to see it last night was that The topic of police brutality and the inner city struggle and all of that that was in their music almost 30 years ago when it started, and now in the film, we see that, and there's this parallel between that and all of the things that we've seen recently with things like Baltimore and Ferguson and, you know, all these police videos and things like that, and even though it does have this throwback to things that happened 25, 30 years ago, it really does feel very contemporary in that way, I'd have to say kind of sadly. Was that sort of a realization when this script was put together? Or do you think that that's something that came out as, you know, F. Gary Gray was putting the film together?
3: I think it's part of the N.W.A.'s story, and it's been consistent across all drafts. And it's just this, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if accident's the right word, but I think it's what's happening in in the political culture and what's happening in the inner cities right now has been going on for a long time, but it just seems to be coming to light. Concurrently with the film, and I, I don't know that anybody, I don't think anyone really planned for it, but I think it certainly heightens the interest in the film, and maybe its you know its place culturally and in the national conversation.
1: You talked about this being sort of one of these kind of I guess holy grail films or something. It was something that was like impossible. Everybody just thought it was never going to happen. So now that it is done, what's your take? How do you feel about what you were able to bring forward?
3: I'm this guy who's like selling films now, and um, and I'm really like sort of championing really interesting little filmmakers who are who are great new voices and are sort of um, diamonds in the rough. And I feel like when we started, it was sort of a diamond in the rough. This film, this script. So it's just it's just extraordinarily gratifying to see the the push behind it and to see this. This thing that really started with a, a little producer and a little manager, an agent, and my and David Angle, who's bigger than us, but still, you know, a new a, a manager at a new company. You know, honestly, I'm trying to, like, sort of help my uh, place in the independent world. I feel great. I mean, it's, it's amazing to be associated with it. And I do think that me and David and, and Lee, the, the writer who went out and helped us get to all the right people, Really had a, an important, important effect in watching the project.
2: So what's next for you? What what should we be looking for? You know, you said you're you're repping a lot of really good titles right now. What uh, what are some of the ones that we need to keep an eye out for?
3: What have I sold this year, I have some things of the English Wanderer, that's a a Rwandan UK production that was at Sundance this year that I expect to be released next year about sort of the white man's precarious place in Africa. Incredible director that the New York Times, Art Forum, uh, The New Yorker have all sort of done features on because of his incredible vision. Uh, I had a film at South by Southwest, two films at South by I have I had an incredible film about vocaloo music, which is a form of Puerto Rican music that's germane to New York and had a quick uh, life and death that, that just did a show at Lincoln Center two nights ago that apparently, like, the police couldn't control it and it was spilling out into the street. A documentary a movie called Uncle John at South by Southwest that was a thriller. Um, I could kind of go on and on, but essentially they're all... There's a guy named Nathan Silver, who's a big indie director in the New York Times, is calling him a genius. Joel Petroikis, another, did a film called Buzzard, a Phyllis release released this year. Just a lot of really exciting new names. And I think some of these guys in ten years are gonna be Paul Thomas Anderson. So I feel like, you know, I had good taste as a producer back back when I was you know, I was always trying to do elevated sort of urban material, if you will. And I think that's what Compton is. And I feel like I'm doing, you know, I'm s i am I still have a like refined sense, hopefully. And I, I think that, you know, in the um you know, in the in the world of, of festivals, like I, I think people would tell you that, that I that I fight I fight for the little guy there, and I think I fought for the little guy in Compton, too. You know, I'm really not producing anymore. It's kind of funny, because I'm not producing and I, I have two projects as a producer, and one of them is about a group called the Rocksteady Crew, which I, I'm hoping will be a big studio movie. I'm doing it with a guy, a friend of mine, who used to do a lot of rap videos and who did He did the first Mall Cup, but that's not necessarily indicative of who he is. We've talked about it as a hip-hop boogie night, because it's about the the Rock City crew was kind of the preeminent first breakdance crew in New York in the early 80s, and it's a little bit about the rise of breakdancing and how quickly it exploded, and then how quickly it just became kind of ridiculous because of the way it was homogenized and mass marketed, and, you know, there were, you know, you turn on Cagney and Lacey and there'd be guys breaking in the background for no reason, and... You know, or or like it was on a fruity couples commercial, and that, you know, in the way that Mark Mark's career starts to go down when things move to video, like that, that it really affected these guys' lives. So that's going to be on the producing side, which is minimal, which is minimal compared to the, the indie sales. You know, but we've been thinking of it as booking nights. So it's funny that people have said a few times now that Compton Boogie nights, and I see that too. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with the Rock Petty crew movie. I, I'm I
2: have high hopes for it. Hey, Mr. Strauss, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
3: You're very welcome. All
2: right, drive safe. Okay, thank you so much. Well, Rob, any final thoughts on Straight Outta Compton?
1: I think that if you're a fan of, of NWA and all of this stuff, or maybe if um, you haven't had a chance to even get into them, I still think that it is a, a fascinating film to watch because you really get this sort of uh, overview of who these guys were, where they come from, and sort of the impact that they have, uh, even up to today. Because, you know, when we talk about the impact of NWA and specifically Dr. Dre, we can't not bring up Marshall Mathers, Eminem, who um, basically took this kid who was rapping and pushed him out you know national international and and made him you know the the biggest thing in hip hop I think, ever in terms of sales. So it still has this impact almost 30 years on from when it all started. And you can see sort of that sort of, I guess, like family tree of how like all of these things kind of interconnect. And I just thought it was uh, an excellent film. And, you know, being a fan of that stuff, it was it was great to check it out. And, and just sort of thinking back to the first time I ever heard Straight of Compton, I think I was probably uh, 11. or 12 (laughs) and uh, I was not prepared for it but I I still remember hearing this tape that my um, friend's older brother had and we were just like wow what is this because before that it was all like Run DMC nothing against Run DMC but you know that's where it started a few years earlier for us listening to hip hop and to go from you know like it's tricky to straight out of Compton like three years later really Uh, Four years later is just like a quantum leap in terms of uh, what you're getting and in terms of uh, ideas and and political point of view that they really want to bring to you.
2: Yeah, I will admit I was always much more of a public enemy listener, Mm -hmm. and it took me a long time before I finally got into NWA. They were kind of lumped in. Unfortunately, in my mind, they were lumped in with the 2 Live crew because of all of the congressional stuff and Tipper Gore and all that because they were just one of those prime targets For having the warning labels stuck on them and just, you know, Mm -hmm. how crude they were and everything. Such a world of difference between 2 Live Crew and NWA. My God.
1: 2 Live Crew is more like, and and I like his stuff, is is more like something akin to, like, Blowfly, you know. And there's a great documentary on him, if you haven't seen it, called The Weird World of Blowfly that you should check out. You know, when I was a kid and I was listening to hip-hop, I was into... You know, Ice Cube, I was into Ice T quite a bit. A little bit of Dre, but mostly Ice Cube and Ice T and Public Enemy quite a bit. I would say the first uh, two or three Public Enemy albums. So, so all of that stuff is what I was into. And when sort of that mashup started to happen between rap and metal, this, I mean, when you go back to uh, like Bring the Noise with Anthrax and things like that, that earlier version of it. That was just sort of the sweet spot for me. I was in just the right place. I was learning to play guitar. I was into metal as well, and I was into hip-hop. And to have all that together in one place was just really cool. And NWA to me just sort of represented this really gritty, really, you know, in-your-face attitude. And I was telling the friend who I went to the show with that I think I always kind of realized this, but never really articulated it in a way, is after watching the film, that in a lot of ways sort of what they were doing and still do. I mean, when you look at like um, Ice Cube's records or or Dr. Dre's records to a certain extent, is sort of like the modern-day equivalent, and I would say the black urban equivalent of like folk singers, that they were working from their experience, they were working from what they saw around them, they were making comment on it, and they were telling stories about it. And I think it scared a lot of people when it came out, quote-unquote parents and older white folks, but it was an important thing to have, and it's still an important thing to have.
2: Well, thank you very much, everybody, for listening to this special episode of The Projection Booth. And please, whatever you do, don't forget about Dre.
0: Y'all know me, still the same OG, but I've been low-key, hated on by most these with no cheese, no deals and no G's, no wheels and no keys, no bolts, no snow and no skis Mad at me Cause I can finally afford To provide my family With groceries Got a crib With a studio And a saw full of tracks To add to the wall Full of plaques Hanging up in the office And back of my house Like trophies Did y'all think I'ma let my toe freeze Hold please You better bow down On both knees Who you think Taught you to smoke trees Who you think Brought you to ODs Easy E's Ice cubes and DOCs The Snoop D.O.W.G.s gs And a group that said Motherfucker police Gave you a tape Full of dope beats To bomb when you Stroll through in your hood And when you're out sales Wasn't doing too good. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? Y'all better listen up closely. All you niggas that said that I turned pop or the firm flop, y'all are the reason the Dre ain't been getting no sleep. So fuck y'all, all of y'all. If y'all don't like me, blow me. Y'all are gonna keep fucking around with me and turn me back to the old me.
4: Nowadays, everybody want to talk like they got something to say But nothing comes out when they move their lips Just a bunch of gibberish And motherfuckers act like they forgot about trade. Nowadays, everybody want to talk like they got something to say But nothing comes out when they move their lips Just a bunch of gibberish And motherfuckers act like they forgot about trade. So what do you say to somebody you hate? What? Or anyone trying to bring trouble your way? One of his all things in the blood of your way? Just no. you study your tape of N.W.A. One day I was walking by with a walkman on When I caught a guy give me an awkward eye And him off in the parking lot But it's parking lot give a fuck if it's dark or not i'm harder than me trying to park a dodge but i'm drunk as fuck right next to when you is truck in a two-car garage popping out with two broken legs trying to walk it off fuck you too bitch call the cops i'm gonna kill you when I'm dark and them am loud ass motherfucking barking dogs and when the cops came through me and dre stood next to a burned down house with a can for the gas and a handful of matches and still weren't found out right here so from here on out it's the chronic two starting the day and tomorrow's anew low coming to chunk you to death with a Charleston tune. Chicka, chicka, Slim Shady, hotter than a set of twin babies, and a Mercedes Benz with the windows up when the temp goes up to the mid-80s, but I've been crazy. There's no way that you can save me. It's okay, go with him, Haley. Nowadays everybody wanna talk like they got something to say, but nothing comes out when they move their lips. Just a bunch of gibberish and motherfuckers act like they forgot about dreams. Nowadays everybody wanna talk like they got something to say, but nothing comes out when they move their lips. Just a bunch of gibberish and motherfuckers act like they forgot about If It was
0: up to me. You motherfuckers stop coming up to me with your hands out, looking up to me like you want something free. When my last CD was out, you wasn't bumping me. But now that I got slow company, everybody wanna come to me like. It was some disease, but you won't get a crumb from me, cause I'm from the streets of <laughs> I told them all. All them little gangsters, who you think helped mold them all? Now you wanna run around talking about guns like I ain't got none. What you think I sold them all? Cause I stay well off. Now all I get is hate mail all day saying Dre fell off. Fuck, cause I've been in the lab with a pin in the pad, trying to get this damn label off. I ain't having that. This is the millennium of aftermath, it ain't gonna be nothing after that. So give me one more platinum plaque and fuck rap, you can have it back. So where's all the mad rappers at? It's like a jungle in a savannah, but all you sap- know that I was strapped with gas. when you were cut a little cabbage patch.
4: Nowadays, everybody wanna talk like they got something to say. But nothing comes out when they move their lips. Just a bunch of gibberish. And motherfuckers act like they forgot about Drake. Nowadays, everybody wanna talk like they got something to say. But nothing comes out when they move their lips. Just a bunch of gibberish. The motherfuckers act like they forgot about Drake. Nowadays, everybody wanna talk like they got something to say. But nothing comes out when they move their lips. Just a bunch of gibberish. And motherfuckers act like they forgot about Drake.
5: I let the Alpine play, I was pumping new shit, buying WA, it was gangster gangster at the top of the list, then I played my own shit, I went something like this, cruising down the street in my 6'4", jocking the bitches, slapping the hoes, I went to the park to get the scoop, knuckleheads out there, cold shooting some Car pulls up, who can it be? It's a fresh elk in a low and kilo G. He rolls down the window and he starts to say, It's all about making that GTA. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard. Come talking that trash and we'll pull your car. Knowing nothing in life, but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy. I ain't said shit. as hell And I wanna get ill So I go to a place Where my homeboys chill Fellas out there Trying to make that dollar I pulled up in the 6-4 Impala Greeted with the 40 And I start drinking and from the 8-ball My breath starts stinking I gotta get my girl To rock that body Before I left I hit the Bacardi Pulled to the house Get her out of the pad And the bitch said something To make me mad She said something that I couldn't believe. So I grabbed the stupid bitch by a nappy ass weave. Started talking shit, wouldn't you know? I reached back like a pimp and I slapped the hoe. And the father stood up and he started to shout. So I threw a right cross and knocked his all ass out. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard. Come talking that trash and we'll pull your cart. Knowing nothing in life but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy, I ain't said shit.
0: Cut
4: this shit.